0: I we'll invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter three. If you're uh, using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 554. We're going to be spending uh, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning, but again, it is a long passage, and so I'm going to do what I did last week. I'm going to start with a section and then we'll read a little bit more as the sermon continues. So let's just start uh, by reading verses. 1 through 13, as our opening section. Beloved saints, this is God's Word. What a privilege it is for us to hear it. Please give your attention to the reading of it. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, He he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. To man. We'll pause there for now. Let us ask that God would be with us as we look at His Word. Our great God of truth, we confess that we are prone to believe lies and not the truth. We are easily swayed and led astray. The simple reality is that we give ear to voices that we should not. We believe things that are simply not true. And worse still, we often believe things about you that you have clearly denied. We believe you are limited by our strength, that you are constrained by our sin, that our wickedness is greater than your mercy. As we now turn to your word, we ask that you would root out all lies, that you would destroy all impostors of truth, and that you would renew our minds in the knowledge of the truth. All of this we ask in the name of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, I, I started by quoting a song that the passage reminded me of, but I wanted to do the same thing this morning. I just couldn't think of a song out there that sounds like our passage, so I uh, decided we'll just dive right in instead. Kids, ask your parents what I'm talking about. If you haven't noticed by now, um, Ecclesiastes has no problem stepping on toes, goring sacred cows, talking about sensitive subjects, pointing out our pride that we like to hide with spiritual-sounding language. In other words, Ecclesiastes is good for us. As we come to chapter 3... that reality is no different. In chapter 1 Solomon wrestled with the frustration over the repetitious the repetitive nature of life. How we always seem to want something new, something different. And really what we want is to do something new, something different, and we think that if we do that we will achieve immortality if not in life at least with a legacy at least we will never be forgotten we will always be spoken of and remembered in the history books and it's here that we're tempted to look for significance and meaning in life that if we can just achieve that we will validate our, ex- our existence the problem is not if but when we fail what happens? We're left with only despair. So chapter 2 looked at the two roads through which Solomon seeks to achieve comfort and significance. He first tried through learning and knowledge, thinking that if he fully understood the world, he would be able to control it. And when that failed, he turned to pleasure. Pleasure hoping to drown himself in all sorts of indulgences, hoping to silence the sorrows of the world around him. But of course, that would mean to ultimately lose touch with reality, and yet he was never able to do that. His wisdom, he said, remained with him, and he knew that there was more to life than mindless pleasure. In chapter 3, we're going to see the struggles of coming to grips with the changing seasons of life. And seasons is the perfect word because they come, they go, they return again. There's no changing them. They are indifferent to our desires and our actions. And because seasons have a purpose, while, not our, while all are not equally pleasant all are important. And the real question is whether or not we are able to see the reason for each season and benefit from them. And that's what chapter 3 is meant to help us with. My goal, my point, the simple message you might say that I really want to get across this morning is this. God has ordained seasons of life to each of us in order to teach us our need for him. And he invites us to learn to enjoy his blessings in the midst of those seasons. That's really what we want to see in this passage. And to see that we want to try to answer three questions. Why do the seasons of life frustrate us? Why was Jesus willing to to submit to the seasons of life? And how can we learn from the seasons of life and even enjoy life in the midst of them? Those are the three questions we really want to wrestle with. Why do they frustrate us? Why was Jesus willing to submit to them? And what can we learn from them? And how can we enjoy life in the midst of them? That's really what we want to see today. Those seasons of life are described in verses 2 through 8, and they're meant to cover all of life's realities. The point of talking about a time to be born and a time to die isn't meant to say, and everything else just doesn't matter. (laughs) It's, It's taking the two poles and saying, there's a time for each of these and everything in between. It's not just saying that you should either laugh or cry, and everything else is forbidden. It's just saying that there's a time to laugh and a time to cry and everything in between. It's pointing out that life is filled with a whole range of experiences. And each of those brings pain or joy, fear or excitement or or other emotions. None of us is able to only dance and never mourn. No one can fill his life only with laughter and not tears. No more than any of us could have only summer and never winter. And this frustrates Solomon. In chapter 2, he told us how he pursued a life of pleasure. He admits that he wanted to have a life of only dancing and laughing and no tears and no mourning. And he admits that no such life exists. But did you catch the hypocrisy? What was Solomon complaining about in chapter one? It was that things never change. That they're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The whole the whole point of chapter one is where's variety, you know, the spice of life? And now what's he complaining about? That things are always changing. (laughs) And it's not just one big party. He's complaining that one day is filled with laughter only to be filled with tears the next day. He's unhappy when things don't change. He's unhappy when things do change. But really what he is unhappy about is that things are not always what he wants them to be. It has nothing to do with what is fair, it has nothing to do with the nature of reality. What we're hearing are simply the cries of an entitled heart, though the cries of being self-centered. I want it fun all the time, and that's how it should be. And the reason why we can read over this hypocrisy, these Antithetical, these opposing ideas of how the world should be, and not even notice how contradictory they are, is because we all sympathize with his complaints. We all say, Yeah, why can't things be new? And, Yeah, why are they always changing? It's okay, we could admit it. We're not always 100% objective. We want change so long as it is fun and exciting but we don't want laughter to change to tears. We don't want youth to turn to old age. We don't want uh, strength to dwindle into weakness and we don't want possessions to turn to loss. We are for peace but could do without war. We readily accept Blessing from God's hand, but we cry foul when hard times follow like the rains follow the sunshine. Much of our frustration in life is not just wanting, but expecting things when they are not in season. And here's the thing about seasons they pay no attention to our actions. None of us sits around in the dead of winter thinking, what did I do to bring this on? It just comes every year this time. Seasons are outside your control. And you didn't bring it on and you can't send it on its way. So it is with the seasons of life. Now, sure there are times of pain and heartache that we bring on ourselves. Pastor Roberts talked about the high propensity for DUIs in the Northwest, but nobody should sit in the jail cell saying, I have no idea how this came on. I guess it's just a season of life. No, you did that. (laughs) But much of life is simply outside of our control. And that's really what we don't like. The average citizen has no voice on when a country goes to war. Cancer strikes when cancer is going to strike. You can be flipping burgers one minute and rushing to visit a grieving husband the next. But these hard times drive us to ask questions that we don't wrestle with On cruises or at parties. When all is fun, we lose ourselves in the moment. But when the seasons change, we ask the big questions. We contemplate justice and injustice. We search for truth and meaning. More than wanting, we need to find significance, reason behind our suffering. That's just who we are. Meaning is an innate need for us. At our most basic level, deep down inside, a place many try to ignore, bury, or to silence, we believe, we know that life must have meaning, it must have significance. We know that we are more than matter in motion, that there's more to reality than meets the eye. Solomon says, God has put eternity into our hearts. Verse 11. You see, no one ever has to convince themselves to believe in eternity and afterlife or heaven and hell. That is our starting point. Every culture, every person, every child, start There, somebody must be convinced out of believing in it. It takes the most intricate and complex arguments. It takes willing students. Because the arguments are so full of glaring holes and omissions that it requires a desire to believe. And what could possibly make anyone want to be convinced that there's no eternity and therefore no ultimate meaning in life, no real significance? No consequence for what they believe in this life for the next? I think we know the answer. They want to do what they want to do Without accountability. They want to pursue what they want. Enjoy what they want. And ignore anyone who says. But that's not right. But it's precisely when hard times come. That we struggle to keep that armor in place. Is then we cry out for meaning. Even the most ardent atheist when he looks upon his mother in a coffin and finds his glib theories as hollow as a salesman's pitch. But all of this presses us to ask if we can't change the world and we can't stop the changing seasons ever moving the calendar towards its final act, where is hope to be found? Let's read verses 14 and 15 together. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Whatever God does endures forever. We can't add to what He does. We can't frustrate His plans. When God acts, it is decisive and it is final. That's reality, and it can be the most terrifying thing you ever hear. Because if you are not at peace with God, if you are at war with Him, competing to have the final voice, if you think His job is to satisfy your sense of right and wrong, if you think that the only reason God could possibly exist... is to do what you think he should, and when he fails to do that, that makes him evil and you righteous, then these will be the most terrifying words you ever hear. When God acts, it is eternal and cannot be frustrated. But what if you've watched the changing seasons of life, What if you have humbly realized that you can no more stop death from coming than you could stop the arrival of winter? What if you've made peace with the fact that tears will follow laughter and that too is beyond your control? What if you have acknowledged that war can't be conquered with a bumper sticker? What if you admit that should you live long enough, you will attend the funeral of every person that matters to you. If you can do all of this, you will look for, you will long for one who can not only do things that have eternal effects, but one who has promised to make all things beautiful in their time. It's then that these words are no longer terrifying to you, but become beautiful. It's then that they don't bring fear, but they bring comfort. I love the end of verse 15. God seeks what has been driven away. This is the same thing the prophet Ezekiel says in chapter 34. He addresses the failures of Israel's shepherds for not pursuing his people, whom he refers to as sheep who have been scattered, who have wandered, who have been led astray. And he says they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. And then he pronounces judgment on his shepherds and God makes this promise. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and have been scat- that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. God says he will do something And what God does endures forever. So, in due time, in due season, God did come. Paul describes it this way When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time. When it was time, in due season, at the appropriate point on the calendar, at precisely the moment God had set before time began, it was then that he sent his son into the world. You can hear it, can't you? For everything, there is a season, even for the creator to enter into his creation. The eternal God, who put eternity into our hearts, entered into a temporary reality. He who was outside time submitted to times changing seasons. He was born and he died. He came to heal and he did not stop those who came to kill him. He was broken down so that he might build up. He mourned and wept. When his friend Lazarus died. But he also attended weddings. Where he probably laughed. And danced. He embraced some. And refused to embrace others. In due season he came and he experienced the seasons. And Galatians goes on and tells us why. It says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus says the same thing, but he uses the language of Ecclesiastes. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to gather lost souls to himself, and that is what what he continues to do through the ministry of the church. It's because he gathers what is lost, because he seeks out what is lost, that we are willing to address sin head on. It's why we are willing to tell the world who he is. It's why we won't simply distract ourselves with pleasant conversation and ignore those gnawing questions that matter the most to us. In Jesus, we find the God who does things that last forever. What he accomplished through that short season of life on earth lasts forever. He fully and completely addressed our rebellion by enduring what it deserved in our place. He did everything necessary to enter into heaven and then he freely gives it as a reward to all who humbly come to him in faith. And it's coming to grips with all of these things that helps us to understand how we might live amidst the changing seasons of life. So let's read the last few verses of our passage, verses 16 through 22. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they might see that they themselves are but beast. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Solomon asked a question in verse 21 that might sound troubling at first. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts goes down into the earth? On one level, he's just being honest with the reality that death comes to all of us. In this way, we are no different than the animals around us. All flesh comes to an end. He's saying, you don't get to live forever on this earth because you're not a dog or a horse. But he's also being honest with questions and doubts. He's staring at the veil of death. And he's unable to peer behind it. Scientifically speaking, death is the great unknown. No one can test their theories about the afterlife and what lies beyond death in a laboratory. His doubts, his questions should not shock us, for most, if not all of us, have said and asked similar things. And honesty should neither shock nor trouble us. Ecclesiastes isn't denying the resurrection. It's not saying that the Bible doesn't have the answer. He's just saying that this is a question, it is a doubt that we all have to wrestle with. But he doesn't just throw up his hands and say, so let's all live as if this life is all there is. He knows that the wicked and the righteous alike will come to stand before their creator and face judgment. And so he says that all of this should lead us to fear God. And that doesn't mean run from God like you would a crazed man with a gun or something like that. It means soberly recognizing God for who He is. It means to see things as they truly are. To recognize that He is the one who can see beyond the veil of death, and He gives us the answers. It's only when we do these things that we can find meaning in the midst of life's seasons. It's not that we enjoy seasons of death and sorrow and tears, but we recognize that we learn important lessons from them. They teach us to see things rightly. They teach us to see ourselves rightly. And we can be grateful for that just as we are with the seasons of the year, the seasons of life thankfully are like the seasons of the year. They're temporary, even short-lived. Solomon ends by saying, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. It's basically repeating verses 12 and 13, which also mention the enjoyment of eating and drinking. But it's here that we need to be careful. It would be easy to take this counsel as a sort of seize-the-day credo. As Nike used to say, just do it. The idea is this life is all you get, so make the most of it while you have the time. Make it one big party because tomorrow's not guaranteed. On the opposite end is radical asceticism, that monastic lifestyle that denies yourself all pleasure and enjoyment. And the reality is we tend to get pulled between these two. Hedonism and indulgence on one hand and total withdrawal on the other. How the devil loves a good false dichotomy, right? The problem with the hedonistic "seize the day" mentality is not the enjoyment of the of life, but the idolatry of excitement and pleasure and entertainment. Because it does not see pleasure as a gift from God, but as it as a god itself to be worshipped. And the remedy then is not to reject God's gifts. For that's equally an act of pride. To render God's judgment on God's gifts, that they are not worthy of your enjoyment. That they are unclean and unacceptable. You see, what we have to realize is that there is a difference between denying self and denying life. And we often conflate the two. We think that humility, denying self requires withdrawal, denying life. The Bible calls you to deny yourself, not to deny life. Everybody should know there are two inappropriate responses to a gift. One is prideful entitlement. There's no thank yous. They just snatch the gift, they take it, and then tell you what's wrong with it. It's not the color I want it. It's not the right one. Is this all? But the other inappropriate response to a gift is rejection, refusing to enjoy it. Somebody gives you a gift certificate to dinner and you say, oh, that restaurant's too nice, we can't go no thank you, we don't want your kindness. When you enjoy God's blessings as a kind gift in a particular season of life, it is an act of humility. Lord, you didn't have to give this gift, but you did, thank you, I love it, I enjoy it. A parent who gives his child a gift enjoys nothing more than the child gratefully enjoying that gift. Humble enjoyment is the appropriate response to a gift given. Likewise, God calls you to humbly receive and even learn from the hard times when they come. Who knows? You may even one day call these gifts because of what you learn from them. How you spend this life does determine where you spend the next, where you spend eternity. Now, I don't mean by that, that you can, by your labors, earn a place in heaven. But neither can you believe that what you do in this life doesn't matter. Jesus said, unless He is in you and you are in Him, you have no life. Jesus said that without Him, you are lost. What you do with him is the most important question in life. If you reject him, you have no hope in death. If you surrender to him, you have no fear in death. This is why he's left us the Lord's Supper. It is a picture of his body and blood given as a gift for us on the cross in death. Just as surely as you must eat bread and drink the wine in order for it to be in you, you must trust Jesus for salvation in order for him to be in you. And so he's given us this meal as a regular reminder that in order... I'm sorry... He's given us this gift in order that we might not forget our need for him. But he's also given it to us so that we might not forget the comfort he gives. If you've trusted Jesus, then just as surely as you eat the bread and drink the wine, he has rescued you. And it comes with a promise that what God does lasts for eternity. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift with humble and grateful hearts this morning. And please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to laugh away our lives like fools You've sent hard times as well as the good in order that we might learn to fear you. For indeed, there is comfort in no other. You have put eternity into our hearts. And what we do in this life matters for eternity. Teach us, we pray, to receive your gifts with humility. Teach us to enjoy our work, our food, our drink. But keep us from worshiping these, from esteeming your gifts above you. And Father, we thank you most of all. For Jesus, who came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And we rejoice that what he does lasts forever. Amen.